Welcome to Revaluing Care in the Times of COVID-19, a podcast series that seeks to examine the power of care work in the context of the current pandemic. As we navigate this uncertain time of economic, social, political, and environmental turmoil, many feminists, activists, and scholars have declared these troubles as an interrelated crisis of care. Now is a time to reimagine how care fits into our society in a way that is more equal and just. This podcast is part of a broader network of 30 scholars from 16 countries called Revaluing Care and the Global Economy, an ongoing project funded by Bass Connections and the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies Department at Duke University. The Revaluing Care project is developed along three lines of research, metrics of care, governance, and social practices. This podcast series not only shares the core ideas of this project, but also seeks to identify what is at stake in these care issues of our time. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our speakers, um, who are all amazing and, you know, hailing from a lot of different places and fields and expertises. Um, We've got Steph Hopkins, who is a Durham activist, a member of BYP 100 and Durham Beyond Policing. And as I said in emails, I couldn't imagine having this conversation without her on board, without somebody who's part of these activist circles um, in here leading the conversation. Um, Next, really excited to have Professor J. Cameron Carter here with us. He's the Professor of Religious Studies at Indiana University of Bloomington, author of forthcoming book, The Religion of Whiteness on U.S. Political Theology. Um, And I've had the privilege of reading his book, Race, a Theological Account. Um, Then we've got an old friend of mine who's doing amazing things, um, Vincente Subversive Perez. He is a UC Berkeley PhD student, performance poet, and activist, and author of Blackness and Latini Bad. And that's where Subversive comes from. It's his poet stage name. Um, and then really excited um, to have Megan McDowell, who I've had the pleasure of meeting more recently. Um, Assistant Professor of History, Politics, and Social Justice at Winston-Salem State University, scholar activist who studies forms of safety and justice that do not rely on policing or prisons. And last, but certainly not least, someone from (laughs) Stephanie Green, Duke undergraduate majoring in public policy and member of Duke Black Coalition Against Policing. Thank you to everyone who's here. Um, I also want to give a shout out, you know, I, one of the news I woke up to this morning is that um, John Lewis, former U.S. representative from Georgia, um, passed away at the age of 80. And so I also want to have this conversation in memory of him and honoring the long legacy of freedom work. Um, and without further ado, I want to turn it over. Oh, and just so um, just to get us started, uh, I want to um, start us out with a more broad question, and that is, what does defunding the police mean? Is it the same as abolition? 
Um, and there are those who are critical of the mantra, but why, from your standpoint, is it accurate, necessary, what have you? And this is open to um, our whole panel. So feel free to, to jump in as you see fit. I can open up the conversation really quick. Um, I think that this question, um, the best way to answer this question is to think about um, defunding the police as a strategy and abolition as a horizon or an eventual potentiality. And I say that mostly because the biggest issue, one of the biggest issues we're facing right now is trying to um, figure out what a radical politic looks like. And I say that because all this time that from 2014 when Black Lives Matter starts as an idea and as a movement to now we've witnessed various groups attempt to be a part of the organization and be a part of these movements and not really understand what these movements are fighting for. And so when we talk about defunding the police, that's an individual specific like strategy in the ultimate bigger goal that we should be looking forward to, which is abolition and abolishing the actual institutions. And so I think defunding the police, it's just this idea that abolition is something that we need, is something that Black people need in order to be liberated, is something that Indigenous folks need, and something that we have all an individual responsibility to move ourselves towards. And so abolishment means so many different things, and abolition means so many different things. And so defunding the police is simply a strategy uh, for disinvestment and reinvestment. And it's a strategy for us to be clear about what we're saying the, the, the big, big problems are right now. Great, thank you for that. And with reinvestment, what are some of the other institutions or areas of society that those funds could be better employed towards? Including, but not limited to, you know, affordable housing and healthcare on a, a university campus that can mean more resources for mental health services for students of color. Um, it can mean anti-violence programs, educational resources, the list goes on. And so when you think defunding, and this is again for everyone, is that, um, do you see that as a stepping stone to abolitionism? Um, do you see it as sort of um, just one area of the abolitionist project? Or do you see it as fundamentally different from that project? Where do you stand? Um, how do those things relate in, in your mind? Uh, hello, I can talk. Uh, my name is Steph and I use she, her pronouns. And again, I am with Black Youth Project 100 and the Coalition Durham Beyond Policing um, here in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I would say that defunding the police is not synonymous to abolition, but abolition is 100% defunding the police. Um, and when we understand, you know, the core concept of defunding, it really is like imagining and and, and understanding that we can't exist without, right? And so what that also does is it leaves space for us, um, as Vincent had said, um, to dream of and to build um, societies in which, you know, we keep each other safe. And also it gives us space to develop our own um, series of accountability. And so to answer your question, I wouldn't say defunding the police is even 
the first step towards abolition. It is a step that has to be done um, alongside many, several other tactics happening all at the same time. Um, as you can see, um, you know, we're talking about healthcare and COVID right now. And that is something that may seem completely different, but um, would ultimately give us more room to dream and take care of each other, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's really just the, the really the understanding that defunding the police is not abolition, but abolition is defunding the police. Um, so, yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. If I could um, jump in, the, the comment that was just made was really, really um, helpful, um, even for me to think about, because I think um, kind of like thinking about the defunding of the police or the problem around policing in relationship to COVID, um, sort of invites us to think about a whole kind of network of ways in which, um, and because I'm like deep inside of this book that I'm finishing, um, a network of ways in which whiteness operates, right? Um, the defunding of the police, I see as having to be thought about in relationship to the ways in which we also need to reimagine um, medicine, for example, outside of um, kind of capitalist relations. The police or policing was itself a feature of capitalist relations, right? Um, and the way in which kind of um, whiteness as a kind of um, um, a protocol of population management um, that used policing, like policing was the vehicle of population management in, in ways that are connected with the way in which we see medicine operating within frameworks of racial capital as well. And now even the ways in which, you know, med medicine has operated in the United States have been bound up with these kind of population management schemes. And so to talk about defunding the police um, is a feature, as the language has already been used, a kind of one strategy that has to go along with a series of strategies that, that are part of this wider kind of endeavor and project of kind of abolition or kind of um, 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 dismantling of the wide structures of how um, um, whiteness um, works as a kind of um, strategy of, of governance and management. Um, and so I'm sort of sort of just riffing in some sense off of um, the comments that have already been been made, but trying to um, further just think about and invite us to continue to think about how these things are actually stitched together all around and under this rubric um, that has convened us anyway, um, that is care, right? Can we come up with other ways to care for each other? Can I can I hop on that point, Jay? Yeah, of course, please do. I, I love I love the way you talked through that because I think one, it helps me think about, I was trying to say like general abolition, right? This horizon, this eventual, eventual moment, this beyond and elsewhere where care is possible. It has to, it requires us to be serious and be, be honest about what the police fundamentally do. And right, right now, so often, a lot of these movements have been about getting trying trying to get people to see what the police actually do and to stop operating in in the abstract idea and so like you know so many folks have told us cruelty is the point of policing cruelty and you know anti-blackness is the fundamental source of why the police were created and what their goals are and so all this abstract conversation about protect and serve and communities and cops of color and black cops specifically, all that conversation we end up trying to talk through because we're not even honest about what the police fundamentally do. And so one kind of tactic when we're talking about defunding the police that has happened, one tactic is 
replacing police officers and traffic stops with city employees. So there we have a question again of wage. We have a question of labor. We have a question of being a public employee. And then we have the discussion for us to be real was just accepting why the hell did we decide that cops in regular traffic situations should have the full capability to shoot people in the moment. And we can't have these conversations if we're talking about protect and serve and talking about reforming the police. We have to start with saying the police cannot be reformed and thus defunding is a strategy to make sure that we are not trying to make better police officers. We are not trying to make safer police tactics. We are quite literally trying to abolish the police because the fundamental thing that they do is engage in and prop up anti-Blackness. Thank you to all of those last few comments, Steph, Jay, and Vincente, just to kind of draw together um, some of the different points that was made. So Vincente, I think you've shown why we need to move beyond thinking about both reformation when it comes to the police and also representation. So just you know, thinking about who the cops consist of is not necessarily going to undo the underlying problem of policing, which Jay has pointed out is um, structured in anti-Blackness. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about um, anti-Blackness and why you can't have the conversation around defunding or abolition without centering um, anti-Blackness and how it has historically and continues to shape the way we even think about policing. And that's where I'm going to give Steph a shout out for her comment and the way that she's asking us to imagine and putting an emphasis on imagination and thinking beyond and, and care work. Um, so I'll, I'll leave those as two kind of jumping off points. <laughs> um, but I, just to circle back one more time to, I, I think some of the threads that have already been like put on the, on the table here for conversation and perhaps carry us a little further as well. I just sort of want to like, kind of like underscore at least one more time, at least in my mind, this, this, this issue about the police as part of a structure. Because we are schooled to think about um, individual police, right? Can we make individual policing better? Can we make individual police officers better? Can we put them through sensitivity training? And in many respects, this is like the kind of classic move that is already operating inside of structures of domination, which is to say it's already operating inside of believing that the problems are at the level of individuation, when in fact the problems are not at the level of individuation. They're at, the, they're at this kind of deeper level about that gives us individuation in the first place. And for me, that's the question of the property relation, that, that the notion of policing moves hand in glove with the way in which settler colonial, the, the imposition of the logic of property onto lands that were already inhabited and then drawing upon labor that was stolen to work that land <laughs> into what we now call, you know, um, the nation, the country, the United States, right? The, the, the thing that we call the United States of America is the, is the end result of a, pro of a process by which land was converted into property. So it had to first, you first had to have the imposition of the logic of property onto something that didn't natively carry that logic so as to make it into a thing that could be stolen. And then once that imposition happens, so as you can then steal it, then you import laborers in to work that land. And so here we have the collusion of 
like kind of um, the theft of native lands with anti-blackness, the, the stealing of labor to work that land. Policing comes in to regulate that whole order. That, that, so before you can talk about individual police, whether this police officer is good or this police officer is bad, is already to be inside of a logic that needs to be fundamentally exploded. Now, when I hear defunding the police, I'm thinking that. I'm thinking that the dismantling of the property relation that the concept of the police is meant to control and to, and to regulate, not to reform that arrangement, but to, to, to explode that arrangement. And the last one I'll make is um, following on Vicente, the language of reformation I think is quite apropos here, right? Because um, to reform is connected to the language of reformation. And it does have this kind of um, um, Europeanized history of the Protestant reformation inside of it, right? And so as we continue to talk about reform the police, reform policing, we in many respects betray the degree to which we are inside of still the kind of religious sensibilities that have authorized the kinds of theft of native land, the importation and stealing of labor to work that land. And at that point becomes a kind of a problem of religion, let's put it that way. About how policing is a part of a larger institution and actually a network of institutions. And I thought this might be a good time to talk about um, how then abolition of policing is connected to abolition of prisons and other type of punitive controlling um, structures in our society. Um, and Megan McDowell, this might be a good time to, to um, bring you in since you're um, an, a person who studies um, abolition. Sure. I mean, I don't think, I don't think y'all need me. I'm just sitting back in and taking all this in. So I appreciate um, all the comments that have been made. And just to, again, build on what folks have already shared and thinking about um, Nicole Siegel's work when she talks about policing as violence work, right? So I think that that's a clear connection, like both prisons and policing are forms of, of violence work and tools of repression. Um, and as Jay Cameron was just talking about, right, that, that police fundamentally at their inception were about managing inequalities that are endemic to racial capitalism. So slavery, colonialism, um, this emergent industrial class. So I think um, it's also important to remember, right, that both policing and prisons are in some ways reforms themselves. So as the state tries to figure out how to, so when we, when we flag reformist orientation, we want to remember those are reforms. These are ways that states were responding to ordinary people coming together to protest their subjugation to capitalism, to slavery, to settler colonialism. Um, so calls to abolish prisons and policing are calls for freedom, you know, full stop, and the destruction of racial capitalism, full stop. Um, and, and just something to add on to this question of anti-Blackness, um, and this is something we learned from Du Bois and Black Reconstruction, right, um, and, and many others, but to be deputized is to be white, right? So whiteness requires an allegiance to anti-Blackness. Um, and I'm happy to say more about that or talk more about that offline, but because there's so much to say about that. Um, but that's an important thing to keep in mind, that, that whiteness thrives on an allegiance to anti-Blackness. So I also see abolition in the horizon as also an abolition of, of whiteness. Um, so uh, I think uh, one more thing I want to say is just one of the things that, that's really dangerous about policing 
is that, and again, other folks on the panel have pointed this out, right, that the, what's dangerous about policing is its openness. So it's not, it's not just a uniform or a badge or an institution. Like policing is a relation. And so we, you know, we all can embody and replicate that in, in our intimate relationships as well. So we just want to like, as we collectively move toward this horizon of abolition, we always have to catch our own selves, you know, that, that cop in our head or our hearts as people in like critical resistance teach us, right? Yeah. So um, just thinking about policing in its openness. And I think that's something that um, that is also true about white supremacy in a certain way. I remember hearing Angela Davis talk some years ago when she said, you know, there's a way in which we can think of white, white supremacy as an equal opportunity employer, right? And that it's openness and it's, and, um, and it's violence. And so to me, the calls for abolition will always include police and prisons, right? But also um, these broader uh, structures and ideological structures that, that animate our world. Yeah, thank you so much for that addition. I think those two comments, both Jay's and yours, um, fit together really well, speak to each other um, really well. And on that note, because you've talked about, so Jay has said um, racism and anti-Blackness is akin to a theology. And Megan, you've just said um, to um, that basically whiteness is deputizing. Um, and so I wanted to talk about then what it means to be actively anti-racist and to call on institutions such as universities where many of us find ourselves, but also um, larger community um, uh, institutions. How can we call on, on those places to be actively anti-racist versus not racist? Um, and what does that mean? What are, what are the demands? What are the expectations? I would like to begin by just talking about what anti-racism work isn't. I've seen a really, really powerful quote by Rachel Carville about how anti-racism work is not self-improvement work for white people. And it's not when they begin to feel good about themselves and the efforts that they've like made to contribute to the black community, despite all the efforts that have been being made in the past and how this is now like a normalized, um, a more normalized effort for by um, multiple institutions and companies and uh, places to speak out about things um, and it's really about taking that time on like a consistent basis and not doing it to make you feel better about the organizations and the institutions and spaces that you're involved in um, to feel better about what they've done in the past and what we oh we're going to try to make do better now like it's a lot more than, than just feeling good about those type of things. If I could, if I could hop on that point, I'm really glad that you that you stated that because to bring it back to to Jay's point about individuation, like we keep trying to have these conversations about the individuals, and we don't get to talk about the way that these structures absolutely need to end. And so, like, um, um, I I operate with an Afro pessimistic lens when I try to understand and talk through what anti blackness is and. What anti-blackness, I'm gonna you know, kind of do the same thing that Stephanie did. I mean, what anti-blackness is not is racism against black people. Because again, the individuation and the idea around identity and representation get us into this endlessly regressive cycle of logic that makes fundamentally no sense. We can't even say whiteness is violence and shouldn't exist because we think We've been told that it's tied to an identity and that all life matters. We can't even again get to this conversation of what's really going on because we can't say we need to end the human as a 
as a thing, as a thing that the academy is structured around, as a thing that controls knowledge production, as a thing that again structures white supremacy, because we can't have this conversation about what is really going on. And so uh, in, in regards to what anti-Blackness is then, it's, it's trying to figure out the way that people come to understand themselves. And so what Afro-pessimism and anti-Blackness helps us see is that white people fundamentally need whiteness and whiteness fundamentally needs anti-Blackness. What, what does that mean? That means that white people feel comfortable knowing that anti-Blackness is a reality. It's not something that can be reformed. It's not something that can exist again and have us get to this beyond elsewhere world. And so we quite literally have to end whiteness. We have to end the human. We have to end the prison system. We have to end so many things. And abolition says that this is this eventual horizon because we have to actually end these things all at the same time, simultaneously, because we, we can't, again, the cop is in our heads. It's not just that the police are bad. The police now interact with the way that we see ourselves and each other. So in this world, it's going to be an endless cycle of white people allowing anti-Blackness to exist and needing it to exist to feel even comfort, to feel like a person, to feel like a human, to feel like a self. They need to know that Black people are experiencing gratuitous violence. And so when we talk about anti-Blackness, again, it's bigger than racism that happens to Black people, and it's bigger than hurt feelings, and it's even bigger than structures, because again, it's, it's, a, it's metaphysical, it's uh, religious, as, as Jay is telling us to think through it in that kind of way, and that it, it structures even a sense of self. Um, thank you both for that. I also wanted to add that with the construction of whiteness, it took generations to build uh, what it is now, right? It deeply embedded in our institutions, deeply embedded within our families um, and thinking about education and healthcare and policing and the prison industrial complex. And so understanding that we know that it is also going to take generations of anti-racist work to even begin to move towards, you know, creating systems that have black and brown people in leadership and in the forefront, right? And so I think what I'm really saying now is a big part of anti-racist work is working with our youth um, and following their leadership as well um, and understanding that you're not going to become anti-racist at night, um, overnight. It's, it's gonna take a series of mistakes and accountability um, and yeah, and, and trusting Black people, honestly, so. Yeah, I appreciate uh, all those comments, and I, I kind of riffing off that, just like being anti-racist, it's not something you are, it's something that you do. So it's not an identity, it's a practice. Um, for speaking to white people specifically right now, right, there's no breaks. There's not a day where you wake up and you arrived. Um, so as long as systems of oppression and exploitation exist, and this remains this active, you know, practice. I think we have to think for white folks about risk, about loss, about a withdrawal of consent. So what is the refusal to be deputized look like in practice? What is a refusal to replicate the logics of the master, the property, or the police? Um, a refusal to live in a world where my hyper life comes at the expense of premature death, 
of Black people, of queer people, of Indigenous people? So there's so many ways to answer this question. Um, I will mention one thing that's come up recently, um, just acknowledging that, you know, Duke University and many universities, admittedly, I'm a Tar Heel, so <laughs> um, Chapel Hill even, um, is nested in um, a, a sense of privilege and resource. And so understanding that we can have these conversations with each other and within our institutions, but until we're willing to um, shift that privilege and resource um, amongst the community that exists around us and even acknowledging that we have um, neighbors to our, our universities um, is really is is really like a great step to take. Um, and what that could look like is, you know, engaging in the, the black and brown businesses that are in Durham. Um, what it could mean is being on the forefronts with people who are walking on the streets, um, you know, in protests of police brutality um, and voting in favor of people um, who want to make radical change in office um, locally. Um, and so I would say um, just also to connect the importance of the theology and the importance of education in this um, is that we do, we need um, people to hear us in community and create um, simple words that um, relate to, you know, very deep concepts, right? So that we can continue to have these conversations um, and, and build towards, you know, a lot of the things that, that the panelists here are working towards, so. And on that theme of being in conversation, um, I wanted to ask, this seminar itself is also very intergenerational. So thinking again about what that means to be in conversation across generations and across fields, um, how do we keep in conversation with different types of people and different types of, of society? Uh, I can just kind of speak for a second about the broader question. Um, you know, when you shared the questions as they were written, like how do we re resist the elitism of the ivory tower or join a movement that's really, you know, for the people? I mean, I think you do it by doing it. Uh, so like join, join or start an organization. Um, I would love to hear actually more about, um, you know, the Duke Students Against Policing on campus. I think that's a, so you organize where you are, right? And I think there's a tendency to imagine we're taught this right the university is like that we're not workers we're not laborers as academics um and that I, I think that that thinking is shifting but it's important to always like center that like we are we are laborers right and and we have our labor power to 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 withdraw and you know wield this power so like organize in, in ways that are aligned with graduate student union efforts um you know north carolina is a right to work state which means essentially the only rights we have is is to quit, um, right? But thinking about how do you how do you organize as as laborers in a university in a right to work state, um, kicking cops out of universities, living wage campaigns um, for service worker employees, which Duke is a huge employer um, of that of that type of work, and so and also like um, divestment campaigns. So the call to defund the police 
is a part of a call out of, that came out of 2016 around disempower, disarm, and disband. And so, de so defunding is a part of disempowering the police, but di divestment shares a broader internationalist legacy, which is really important with campaigns against apartheid in South Africa, the current BDS campaign in relation to Israel. Um, so f for me, I think um, not overthinking it in a way and organizing where you, where you are um, is always a good place to start if you're looking for, for a place to start. Um, And on that point, um, Stephanie Green, would you like to talk a bit about what um, you do in the um, Duke Black Coalition Against Policing? Yeah, so I'm a member of Duke Black Coalition Against Policing, um, and we are working kind of with the institution of just Duke and what the implications of disbanding from DUPD have within both Duke and Durham. So we recently, um, released about a nine page list of demands administration, which I can link in the chat if anyone's interested in reading, um, asking for Duke to disclose, divest and disband um, um, from police. And it's a, um, we're waiting on a response right now. Uh, I think we requested for the next coming week. So it's a, it's really just working with members within Duke community, but also people in Durham and with different workers who have experienced different things and acknowledging those those stories and that history that comes with Duke policing um, and acknowledging that, you know, this violent institution needs to be taken off our campus. I want to thank all five of our panelists for the really rich and inspiring points that you've all made and the ways that these points all speak to one another. We'll continue the conversation now, but open it up to questions from the audience. Now we have a question from Jocelyn Alcott, the Director of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies here at Duke, who is also with us today in the audience. She asks, what does defunding the police mean for care? Defunding the police is not only a problem of allocating resources, but also a question of social power structures and care. For example, what can people do when they hear gunshots? In Brooklyn, Grassroots organizations created an autonomous system of calls to help the people who might be affected by gunshots without calling the police. Alcott wonders what our ways of taking care could be once we defund the police. I would say that I consider what has been going on across the country as uprisings. It is an opportunity for Black people, Indigenous people, and working people um, to reclaim our power in a sense and to feel in community and unity with each other. Um, I would also say that if you're only paying attention to what is happening on the news, then I also would be, you know, very skeptical because you know, the, the news in itself holds anti-blackness and, um, and racism. And so it, it's really an important part to, um, you know, just kind of leading to, I really encourage you all to go to the Durham Beyond Policing, um, dot org to look up our 2018 um, budget proposal. And so this was an op opposition of the expansion of the police in Durham. And what we offered city council, county commission and school board um, were just so many examples of how the community itself, how we keep each other safe. Um, and there is this moment where um, kind of 
you know, what Megan had mentioned, like how we can get into policing each other. And so there's, um, you know, there's, there's going to be moments like that. But I think if you are strong in your politic um, and your vision for an abolitionist world, um, and you trust the people that are in the intersections of oppression um, to, to lead these moments and movements, um, then I think that you're only continuing to work towards, um, uh, you know, what liberation, what, um, yeah, what liberation and what, you know, a whole new society can look like. So. I think one of the most important people out there writing and thinking right now has already been invoked here, Sadia Hartman. Sadia has this phrase in um, The Anarchy of Color Girls where she talks about um, mutual aid. And I think um, Dean Spade has a book that's like going to be coming out this fall, which is also titled Mutual Aid. And I want to sort of like think between like Spade and Hartman and, and think about mutual aid as a potential locution for what care could mean when you uncouple it from the property logics and from the logics of um, um, the, the logics of capital. Right. The, the problem is, is that the ways in which what we call care it's been it's it's inside of these kind of like mechanisms of exchange origination of care itself from individuated exchange right and sadia talks about in um in the anarchy of color girls where mutual a is predicated upon a new imagination of collectivity itself the, the way we think collectivity is under the presumptions of individuation first and i think what hartman is interested in is like kind of backing up and saying, can we think a form of care that begins from our implicatedness in each other? Almost like in the way in which a quantum physicist would think about the imp implication of particles in each other, right? Such that the individuation of any given particle is predicated upon or grows out of collectivity first. Now, what does care look like under that, that framework? What does collectivity look like and sociality look like under that framework. I think we are, we've been living in, the, in a crisis. Since the inception of the settler colonial project, we've been in a crisis of care because the social imaginary, which is to say the political imaginary, has been an individuated imaginary. And the minute it's thought through individuation, through bordered separations, you need a mechanism of policing to govern it, to come back to the police thing. And so when we talk about defunding the police, we have to defund the political imaginary in which policing has some sort of coherent sense to it. Thank you so much for that response. That was incredible. This has been such a wonderful and generative conversation. Wow. Thank you to everyone who was able to tune in and listen to Defunding the Police, Confronting Anti-Blackness, Centering the Margins, which is just one episode in a series called Care in the Times of COVID-19. Thank you to our five amazing panelists. You guys are awesome. Um, and thank you to both the Bath Connections and the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies programs for um, putting this together and enabling this to happen. Thank you to Jocelyn Alcott in particular for this series. And another big thank you to Tanya Rispoli and Yanping Ni, who really were instrumental in helping organize this thing. And I couldn't have done it without you guys. Um, make sure to tune in for the next episode, which will be contact tracing between control and care. This will take place over Zoom on Saturday, July 25th 
and will be available as a podcast after. Thank you.